presentation, you would think ASU is, ro is rolling in a lot of money, <laughs> being able to do what you're able to do. So given decreasing state allocations and having to make difficult choices, how do you maintain your vision while taking into account a shrinking, a shrinking budget? Well, so, so we have 17 revenue sources, 14 of them are up and three of them are down. It's probably the same at the U of A. So most of our revenue sources are up. Now, we don't have high fungibility between the revenue sources, so if our research revenue is up, which it is dramatically, you can't move that over to help teach you know, freshman math or freshman English. And so what, you know, while we're fighting against every fund reduction imaginable, I mean, we're, we're like sticking, we got pitchforks and sticks and everything else out there. You know, we're fighting for Prop 100 to win, and, and uh, things are going well according to the polling data, and so you know, we're confident that uh, we're at least getting the message out there. We'll see what happens. So we believe that the state has been, the leadership of the state has been irresponsible by cutting the universities to the level that they've cut. Okay, they cut, so you know you can you can cry about it all you want. It won't it won't bring it back tomorrow. You've got to figure out how to advance the institution. So you advance by developing models which enhance your revenue streams. You you that's what we focus on. How do we improve our retention? ASU, U of A, we both have below par retention, below par. And AU also. That's both fantastic students walking out the door and revenue walking out the door. Both have a huge impact. Huge impact on the student, huge, huge impact on the institution. So we're focused on retention. We're focused on expanding our online offerings, which we can offer on a lower cost basis to generate revenue that we can then also put into our core academic programs. We're adjusting our expenditures. Uh, we have eliminated 1,400 positions all administrative and uh, support staff. Uh, a lot of those people have been able to be hired back into new positions as they've opened up, but a lot haven't. We have focused on, we're still continuing to hire faculty, we're still continuing to advance our faculty, we're still continuing to keep, fill key positions and, and retain faculty and so forth because we're pooling and marshalling our resources. And so while it is true that the decision by the legislature to cut the funding for the universities back for ASU on a per student basis, so far we've been cut by 30 fiscal years. So we're back to 1980. If Proposition 100 doesn't pass for ASU, will be will be reduced to the level of funding from 1968 on a per student basis. Well, what are you going to do? Like roll over and just you know, you know, we, we resist. We we, we uh, folks that are friendly to ASU and invested a lot of money to help Proposition 100 to be successful, same with U of A, same with others. And so we fight on that front, we fight on other fronts, but we also have to go back and look at our own institution. So, so we're restructuring, reorganizing, uh, reassigning things, doing things in different ways, saving money here, generating new money there, trying to make our way through it all. And so uh, negative outlook, you know, so well, the state has cut us dramatically. Our total expenditures last year were more than they were the year before. And you're like, well, then you ought to be able to figure that out somehow. <laughs> and so, yeah, is it very difficult? It's very difficult. Have we hurt ourselves relative to class size and freshman class size and other kinds of things? Yes, yes, yes. So, has, so have the other institutions that have been so affected. And then that means then maybe you need to move more quickly to put more technology in the classroom, to figure out new ways to advance, to teach chemistry and English and math and the other large classes in different kinds of ways. Because if you don't adapt, then we will fail. So it's either adapt or fail, adapt or fail, while making our case for public investment. And so that's how we're, that's how we're approaching. Yes? 
So we have auxiliary enterprises, we have current use gifts, we have uh, we have revenue from endowment, we have revenue from research, we have revenue from summer school, you know, all those kinds of things, whatever they are. Summer school revenues are fantastic. Uh, we have uh, revenue from out-of-state tuition, uh, which is also fantastic for us. And, and so we've been trying to take, as you guys have also, take our out-of-state tuition to its market elasticity point. When I came here eight years ago, no one had ever done a market elasticity study at ASU for what the out-of-state tuition could be. We were undercharging by $4,000 because we thought somehow that made us friendlier. Friendlier to who? Because then we didn't have the money to pay our faculty. And so, and so we've adjusted our faculty salaries, we've adjusted the model, we've adjusted, adjusted our revenue model, our decision-making model. All of the deans have, have uh, revenue goals, all of the deans have revenue incentives. Uh, at private universities like Columbia, where I came from, that's what they actually talk about. If you think they're like talking highfalutin stuff in the dean's office of the law school at Columbia, uh, they, maybe on Mondays, but the, the other four days is how do I get the revenue to keep the school moving forward because there is no legislation. <laughs> there is no funding from the people. And so it's a completely different, completely different logic. And so, so, um, you know, we're also trying to figure out, you know, just how to be a better institution. I mean, you know, I, I hesitate to bring up some of this stuff because you'll just leave saying, what a heretic. But, you know, whoever made the curriculum four years, you know, so I don't know. Maybe it's good for four years for some things. Maybe, maybe general education requirements could be pursued more quickly by certain students. Maybe you could make the institution more effective and more efficient at the same time. And then I hear back from everyone, well, then they won't have the acculturation process that we need in the university. No, maybe we'll get them into a master's degree at the end of their third year, and they'll be in the institution for six years, and they'll leave with two or three or four degrees instead of leaving after four, five, or six years with one degree, maybe. And so how do you intensify the learning experience? How do you accelerate the learning experience? How do you be innovative? So the one thing that we've really tried to do at ASU is change our perception of change. Change is good. Speed is good. That doesn't mean everything is fast. When we teach opera in the School of Music in the Herberger Institute for Design and the Arts, I think it goes very slowly. <laughs> when we teach acting, I think it goes slowly because it must. It's a nurturing kind of thing. You know, some things don't have to be that way. Some do. Not everything falls into the same model, so let's unleash the system and allow it to move at various Let's allow students to move through when they demonstrate that they have the knowledge to move through, rather than, no, you've got to sit and wait for everybody else that's slower. Well, why? I already know everything about Psych 101. Why am I wasting my time in 15-week Psych 101? Now, that's not easy to pull off, but that's what we're pulling off, and that helps us then relative to revenue also. Helps us to, the, to our model, both expenditure and uh, sources, both sources and uses. Michael, I, I, the, the message I like, and your engagement with the community for social health and, health and vitality, I'm curious, have you, has the reform kind of got ahead of the society that you're in? And what I'm specifically addressing is the fact that, and I'm engaged with the community in the afternoon, mm -hmm. uh, we get out of here. Hate, fear, prejudice, division, yeah. these issues are rampant in yeah. Arizona. 
Uh, how All driven you, by the same thing. How do, yeah, how do you go back to your model and come back in? And I, I'm a social scientist. I think we totally failed both universities. Mm -hmm. But how do we come back in and, and keep your model going with the fact that now internationally we're noted for this particular problem? You know, you have, you have to create in any culture bastions of, of learning and discovery and teaching that can weather any storm and can continue to put out ideas contrary to bad ideas, analysis of bad ideas, mechanisms to defeat bad ideas, mechanisms to raise the educational levels and the understanding levels. We listed that as some of the grand challenges that we have to work toward. And so we see that as a part of our role, and that means then that the institution then has to itself be designed in a way and operate in a way where you can have open and free, respectful discourse. And so we have, we have uh, dealt with issues of hate speech and hate-oriented speech and all kinds of other things and people trying to uh, uh, unfairly treat students and you know, we've raised a lot of money for these initiatives and a lot of resources to be able to move forward on as many of these sort of social transformation and social justice. We have now a school of, a school of social transformation. We have a school of trans-border studies, a school of family and social dynamics. Those are schools devoted to those purposes each with dozens and dozens and dozens of faculty members in there focusing on those issues and graduate students and speakers and everything else that's happening. So you create this environment. You create this environment. I had some state legislator, you would know who it was, I told you who it was. She asked me like, I'm like, am I like in one of those Twilight Zone shows or something? Because she goes, she goes, are you a patriot? <laughs> I don't know, I mean, you know, I was born in California, my family, I'm the 14th generation on my father's side that lives in the United States. Yeah, okay. And I love the United States. But you don't believe in borders. Well, in what way? Well, you know, you've got this trans-border study center. Right. Yeah. Well, what are you doing? We're studying the border. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the relationships between the borders. He says, why? Well, I said, you know, uh, there's cultural connections and economic connections and linkages and, you know, Mexico and Canada are, are, you know, two huge trading partners and we've got all this stuff going on and we have, we have heritage links and families that are linked and that's why, and a huge labor connection. And then she said, she said, well, the president of Mexico is a drug dealer. I said, <laughs> at the time it was uh, Mr. Fox, I said, no, he was actually a Coca-Cola bottler. <laughs> so, anyway, yeah, yes. Uh, you, you referenced the failure of the uh, K through 12 system. Uh, realistically, though, what can the higher education system do today? Yeah, so so we can do lots of things, and so uh, produce uh, better and more prepared teachers for the world that we're actually encountering, drawn from the best possible students that we can attract into teaching, that have the right psychology, the right forms of intelligence, drawn from disciplines like math and English and Spanish and you know, the disciplines themselves. And so we're restructuring dramatically how we're organizing teacher preparation at ASU. We're restructuring the whole thing from the bottom up, inch by inch by inch. We just launched a series of initiatives within the last few weeks to be able to do that. So that's number one. Number two, we started two charter schools, one in the Phoenix Elementary School District and one in the Higley School District. And we intend with those charter schools to demonstrate that on the price of whatever the state gives us, 
We can take kids from any economic background and make them successfully transit to K through 12 education system. And we intend to do that on a scale sufficiently large to be able to demonstrate, well, here's at least what we know. Not that we know more, but not just what we know either. Here's what we were able to do on the same resources as everyone else. And we created a few years ago a vice president for educational partnerships that works with all the underachieving school districts uh, on every tool, with every tool we have, every mechanism we have to affect that college going rate. Because unfortunately, while even the school districts are underperforming, kids that are even capable of going on to the university aren't going for whatever set of reasons. And so we're working on that uh, also. And I won't go through the whole list, but the list means also that, that um, we have to change the status of educationally oriented colleges and schools within the university itself. So that one of those Nobel laureates that we hired, Lee Hartwell, who was the president of the Fred Hutch Cancer Institute, he had two assignments. I put, I don't think I put his slide up there that showed all of his assignments. So he's now a faculty member in our teachers college. Because he's only interested in one thing. He wants everything. He wants to figure out with all of his genius in science how to make science and technology more interesting to kids. Because we're doing a bad job doing that. And then he's hooked into reforming healthcare. So those are the two things that he's interested in. So you bring great people, you do things, we've been raising money. So we're hiring four faculty lines in engineering that will work only with K through 12 in engineering. So how do you get kids interested in technology? How do you move forward in new and different ways? We held a meeting last Monday at our Skysong Center in Scottsdale on educational innovation. Who did we invite? We invited all the big technology, educational technology companies like uh, Pearson and uh, uh, Microsoft and all those guys, lots of small companies, and 80 venture capitalists. And they came in from all over the country. They spent a whole day together figuring out how do you create an educational innovation hub in Arizona where new ideas, new companies, new products that will help education in K through 12 and other things to work better. Well, let's get some of that going. So that's, that's that. we're working on that on that scale also. So those are the kinds of things that we try to do. Yes, over here there's three of you all together. Okay. <coughs> I wonder, well you mentioned that establishment of new exciting schools like the School of Social Transformation and School of Border Studies, there's a whole big announcement of the disestablishment of several schools.
put these faculty members into new intellectual constructs, that if they take the time to think it through, and once they move into these things, they've seen this happen, they see that there's new horizons, new vistas, new capabilities, and so forth. Now, some individuals, you know, they're against everything. I mean, they're just against everything. And so I'm like, No, I, I can't say that to a faculty member, but but I can say, you know, here's your assignment. Please do it to the best of your ability, because your your you know your tenure at the university is not to a department or to a discipline; it's to the university. And here's your assignment. And so uh, we haven't had very many of those issues. I mean, for the most part, you know, we've done over 20 of these, uh, and they are. I'll give you the life sciences, for instance, has been wildly wildly successful. Nursing. Did in nursing, we now have a college of nursing and health innovation. We moved nutrition into that college. We moved wellness into that college. We moved healthcare innovations into that college. We just moved uh, health administration into that college. And at the end of the day, what we will have in that now college of nursing and health innovation is hundreds of faculty members and thousands of students across the entire spectrum of activity related to healthcare, health delivery, health enhancement, wellness, and all those things all hopefully working, organized, and, and, and pursuing new, new challenges together. So but yeah, some people don't like it when we come in and say, now particularly, I mean, people have also, they're no longer employed. But that, that's the staff in these units. Because we're, we have to operate with fewer staff. We have to, we have no choice. We have fewer resources. You guys are gonna have a furlough. We already did a furlough last year. 12,000 people, as many as 15 days. Last spring semester, people's salaries were reduced by 7%. So we've already been through that. And we did that early to, to allow us to concentrate our resources. Yes? Speaking of healthcare uh, needs, what's your vision for the state of Arizona for uh, medical doctor education? And what's your vision right here in the mind on that between the U.N. partnership with U of A? Yeah, so the question on the partnership relative to the College of Medicine at the U of A, um, you know, when you're in a financial situation like we are in, and somebody says, let's build all these new businesses, these buildings in Phoenix, and let's move really, really fast, uh, it's very difficult for us to do that and to stay focused on the other things that we're doing. And so if the partnership required us to make millions of dollars of investment uh, right now in the financial situation that we're in, with our dollars per student dwindling, uh, we were not able to do that. Now, having said that, you know, we're still the ally of the College of Medicine. We're working with the College of Medicine. We, we share space. We have joint programs and activities. But having said that, our longer-term institutional vision for health-oriented uh, research is to be party to initiatives that are associated with moving away from individual patients to the state as the patient, to the macro as the patient, as opposed to the micro as the patient. We believe that the tools of social science, social work, psychology, counseling, behavioral change, particularly behavioralist areas where we have tremendous strength and tremendous capability, matched with uh, biomedical informatics, matched with biomedical engineering, which we also have, matched with engineering and science in general, sensing, detecting, uh, at-home medicine, on-body, in-body sensors, all these kinds of things. We think that we can make serious positive effects come out of the treatment of things like diabetes and obesity and asthma and uh, all kinds of, of, of chronic diseases like that. And so we're going down that path, the path of what I call macro medicine. And we're
partners and working on trajectories to be able to do that. And we think that we will be able to make, in the long run, a significant impact on a differentiated model. So our decision relative to the medical school had to do with timing, finances, and speed, and also this kind of orientation that we have relative to what we think social scientists, psychologists, counselors, and educators, teachers, everyone else can have as an impact on medicine. I mean, you all know the statistics. What's the number one cause of premature death in the United States? What? Heart disease. Well, it's actually the use of tobacco. The number one cause of premature death in the United States is a behavior. We thought, well, why don't we take that one on? What about diabetes type 2? <coughs> What's the cause of that? Yeah. Diet, behavior. Again, some genetics, yes, absolutely. But it's, it can be affected positively by changes in diet, behavior, exercise. Again, those are areas that what we're looking to is where are our areas of strength, and we have lots of them. How do we apply them? Who can we partner with to apply them? And so that's sort of the rationale behind that. Yes? It struck me in your presentation that many of, uh, that much of your vision is a humanities vision. Mm -hmm. When we have these conversations, often the examples that are cited about transformation, innovation, and creativity are scientific or business or engineering. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder if you could comment on the humanities themselves and their importance in uh, in these kinds of changes. Right. So, so at the end of the day, the core of the institution is, in fact, the the, the, the keepers and the philosophers about culture and who we are and where we came from and why we're here and what our origins are and and. Uh, everything else that has evolved from language, every culture, all the things that have evolved. And so that's at the core, and you're right that often the nomenclature used in these discussions is more reflective of the uh, periphery, uh, the newer things that have evolved. Uh, so what we've been doing in, the, in the, so it's central, what, what, what we have been doing within the humanities, um, if I had gone through each of the research areas, you would have seen a couple of them listed, and I have a whole series of slides related to what we're doing there. So for instance, our Center on Conflict and Religion, uh, which believed eight years ago that they could never be funded for anything, uh, now has received, I don't know, $10 million of funding in the last few years out of our religious studies faculty and our philosophy faculty and our history faculty, focusing on uh, understanding and more deeply communicating and teaching about the three great Abrahamic religions and their common heritage, common, common history, common language, common culture, whatever religious language and so forth. Uh, and so we've got examples of that everywhere. So we've been working on those fronts at the same time. We've been making large-scale investments. We've been hiring, we'll just be finishing up next year the addition of 40 new tenure-track faculty members to the English department. Uh, and so, as increases. And so we've been investing in English, we've been investing in core disciplines in the humanities. Uh, we've been adjusting folks' salaries in the humanities. If you look at where salaries were versus, versus where they are now, so we've been making investments. And some talks I give are only about that. Uh, and, uh, uh, but you're right, that it, it is the core, it needs to be the core, and we look at it uh, that way. Now, we have a huge teaching assignment. So we have 56,000 undergraduate students, and they 
they all have to have humanities at the core of their undergraduate experience, regardless of the discipline that they're in. So we have a huge, huge teaching assignment. So I think we have 200 plus instructors in the English department alone on the Tempe campus. And uh, you know, how do you teach freshman composition and literature? And and we've also created whole new units. So we've created a we've created uh, our Institute for Humanities Research. We've created uh, linkages between the humanities and our theater departments, uh, and a range of these things, as well as trying to get as many student groups <coughs> and student activities engaged in, in the core of what the humanities are about. We created a school called the uh, School of International Languages and Culture, SILC, and so it has the same purpose of trying to advance them. So, yep. Okay, time's up, she said. Let's thank uh, Dr. Cooper. Yeah, thank you, everybody.